Good morning. Uh, all right, yes, as, as Matt told us, we are in the book of Numbers today. And our text comes from three different places. Um, the first in chapter 14, the second in chapter 13, the third in chapter, uh, also in chapter 13. Now, we've been in this sermon series. I'll get to those texts in a second. We've been in this sermon series called One Story, the Bible. Is it one story? Where did I get that? Previous. That's right. Okay. No, it's not. It's, it's the Bible. We're going through the Bible in a whole year. We're reading together. We're preaching together. And we're trying to figure out what is this book all about. And today we're going to be talking about the people's rebellions in the book of Numbers. So my job is to open up three chapters in this text that we read this week, Numbers chapter 14, chapter 16, and chapter 21. Now, I don't have time to read all those chapters to you, so what I want to do is try to isolate the common theme in all three of those chapters. So I'll take as my text the following verses. First, Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Then 16, verse 11. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And then chapter 16, verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the common theme in all these chapters is that the people grumble against their lot in life. They grumble against God's providence in their life. And we're going to consider this grumbling under three headings. Number one, why were they grumbling? Number two, what does it mean to grumble? And then number three, is there any hope for these people? So why were they grumbling? What does it mean to grumble? And is there any hope? So first, why were they grumbling? Let me summarize all these stories in each of these chapters because they're different, but there's a lot of similarities as well. And I want to try to help you see why it is that the people were grumbling. So first in Numbers 14, the first story, the people had just received the report from those who went to spy out the promised land. Remember they sent spies into the promised land to see, like, are we going to be able to dispossess these people of their land? And so the majority of the spies came back and said, no. We cannot possess this land. The people who possess it right now are warriors. They're, they're bigger than we are. There's fortifications everywhere. There is no way we are possessing this land. But there was a minority, two of them, who came back and said, who cares? The Lord has said, go up into this land and take, this is the promised land. We will go into it. We can. All we must do is trust the Lord. But the people, all they can taste is their own fear. They simply can't believe that they will prosper against this powerful enemy. And so their response comes in chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. 
And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, listen, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They reject the good promises of God and decide that they would rather put their hands right back into the shackles in Egypt rather than to believe the promises of God and follow him and his leading into the land. They're blinded by their fear. They, they can see nothing except their own fear. And in that fear, they come, to, did you hear it? They come to believe that God means to harm them. He means to harm them instead of prosper them like he promised. Now, something similar is going on in Numbers chapter 16, the next story. In this case, a priest named Korah is apparently like upset by the, the balance of power in the nation of Israel. So he challenges Moses. And remember, Moses is the man that God chose to lead his people. And so Korah says to Moses in chapter 16, verse 3, you, Moses, have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves, he's talking to Moses and Aaron, above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, Moses, you're not that special. We're all holy. We're all chosen. And you have done us a great wrong by exalting yourself over us. Who do you think you are? So in this case, the people are grumbling because they don't approve of God's provision as leader. And then the last uh, evidence of grumbling we see is in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water and we loathe this worthless food. So the reason the people grumble here, as it says, is that they have grown impatient. They're tired of wandering. They're tired of walking through the wilderness this barren wasteland in which there is no accessible food, no accessible water. Now to be clear, in case you didn't read it, just to be clear, God has provided for them every step of the way. Miraculously, he's brought water out of rocks. Every morning they wake up, there's manna all over the ground. And the people, by the way, are totally irrational. Did you hear it? We have no food. Also, we hate the food that we have. Did you hear it? <laughs> like they're to totally irrational. So taken together, what's going on in these three chapters is the following. The people of God grumble against the promises of God 
and the provision of God. They reject the good land that he has provided for them. He, they reject the good leader that he has provided for them. They reject the provision of food and water that God has given to them. Now, let me just stop for a moment. And let's try to figure out why are these things, why are these grumblings, why are these rejections coming out of the people now, at this point in the story? Well, uh, in our English Bibles, this book, as you no doubt know by now, is called Numbers, which is a terrible title. Like if somebody was going to decide, you know what, I've never read the Bible before, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one book, and they open to the table of contents, you know what they're not going to pick? Numbers. It's a terrible name. But here's where I tell you that Numbers is actually not the original title of the book. That title actually came to us in the Greek and Latin translation of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. So if you go and look in a Hebrew Bible, the name of the book is Bemidbar. Which, I know. Which, when being translated, means in the wilderness. Ooh. So that, now that is tasty. That is intriguing. In the wilderness. What's going to happen when the people go into the wilderness? I don't know. Let's read the book. Well, we see exactly in these verses, in these stories that we've been considering, what happens when God's people go into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing. The wilderness is a place of trial. In the wilderness, all the known quantities of their lives are stripped away and all they have to rely on is God. Back in Egypt, they were slaves, but at least they knew they were going to get fed a square meal. In the wilderness, they have no way of gathering their own food. They have to rely on God's provision alone. Back in Egypt, they felt the lash upon their backs, but at least they weren't going to enter this land and get cut down with the sword. It was a miserable existence, but it was predictable. In the wilderness, God asks them to trust him. That if, that if they go up against an army that by all measures they should not be able to beat, that he will fight for them. He says, trust me. Or to say it another way, in the wilderness, the people see what is really in their hearts. The rebellion was already there. The wilderness revealed it. And what they find in their hearts when they enter the wilderness is grumbling. And the thing is, the grumbling lived within them. The wilderness was only the opportunity to draw it out. Now, that leads us to the next point. What does it mean then to grumble? Okay, we've seen why they're grumbling. Now, what does it mean that they're grumbling? We're about to see the severe consequences that were meted out against them for those who grumbled against Moses and against God. But in order to understand, like, why that happened, we, we need to understand what it means to grumble. So we need to allow 
the stories to define it for us. Let's, let's let the Bible define its own terms. So the people have been chosen by God to be his covenant people. They, they are chosen to enter the promised land and possess it and become its everlasting inhabitants. God has led them every day through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Never has he left them, never has he forsaken them. He has proven in every instance that he will provide for them. He has proven in every instance that he will fight for them and that he will never break his promises. And then upon hearing about the plan of the Lord to bring them into the promised land, they reject it and wish they had died back in Egypt. When they grow tired as Moses is their leader, they reject him and wish they would return back to Egypt. The theme is constant. When their bellies hunger for more than just like manna, miraculous, breadish stuff on the ground, they reject God's provision. Why? Well, I, I think... I think all of it, their response can be summed up in Numbers chapter 14, verse 3, which we read earlier. Here's what they say. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That's a purpose clause. Why is he bringing us into this land? In order to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. So I take that to mean that to grumble against the Lord is to have a, listen, to have a conviction in the heart that God who has promised to do them good is instead carrying out a secret plot to do them harm. When the people grumble, what they're essentially saying is this, Lord, you have declared yourself as one who is abounding in steadfast love, but from our perspective, you are only abounding in malice and treachery, and we see through it. That's, that's, that's what grumbling is. God has led them every step of the way, and yet the people are firmly convinced that if it was up to them, this is not how they would arrange their lives. And if God is bringing these things to pass in our lives, he cannot be good. Instead, we're just pawns. Like, we're just pawns in his wicked plans, and the only thing he means to do for us is to harm us. Now, huh, if you can't relate to that, you haven't been alive long enough, or you haven't been a Christian long enough, or you haven't been non-Christian for a lot. If we're being honest with ourselves, we, we have to be able to relate to this. It's, it's, it's really easy to click our tongues and wag our heads at so blatant a rebellion in people so long ago. But haven't we found that same grumbling within ourselves? Like at, at the moment, haven't we found that inside of us at the moment when God cuts against the grain of our preferred reality? Isn't there something in all of us that looks at the circumstances of our lives and accuses God of malice and evil? Like there's something in all of us that believes God is not in fact as good as he says he is. That, that he's just like lulling us into this sense of vulnerability so that we make easier targets for his real plans which involve our misery and destruction. Now, we never say this stuff. This is not stuff we say. 
That would sound terrible. This is what's within. Now, in each of these three cases of grumbling against God, the punishment is exceedingly severe. In the story about possessing the land, God proclaims that the people who believed that he was just trying to do them evil would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, you don't get to possess the land. You get to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all this generation is dead, and then your children will inherit the land. In the story about Korah's rebellion, those who aligned themselves with Korah were swallowed up by the earth. (laughs) You remember reading that? Oh, the earth opened up. Um, In the story about the food and the water, God sends deadly, fiery serpents, like to bite them and to kill them. And I know, look, I'm not an idiot. I know that we chafe at that kind of... Sounds bad. We, we, we chafe at that kind of retribution. Like, like, couldn't God Almighty, abounding in stuff, can't, can't he overlook it? Can't he forgive? Can't he find some mercy somewhere instead of doling out judgment like this? The thing is, he already did that. If, if, that's, if that's a problem for you, like, okay, let me show you. He's already done that when the people grumbled. This happened in back, back in uh, Exodus 15. Um, this is right after the people leave uh, from Egypt, and for three days they couldn't find any water. So this is like a serious situation. Like lots of people, three days, no water. Finally they find a stream, but when they taste it, the water is bitter and undrinkable, And so it says that the people grumble. First time it's used. The people grumble against Moses and against God. And listen, I think we can all understand that, right? I mean, after three days of no water, the congregation is likely on the the brink of death. They need water. And And when they finally find it, they can't drink it. And so in response to this grumbling, God does not, in fact, judge them. He tells Moses to throw a piece of wood in the water. And when he does, that bitter water becomes sweet water. And they drink until their heart's content. And then listen to what happens next in Exodus 15, verses 25 and 26. There, listen, okay. Take this in context with everything I've just said. Listen. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. I am the Lord, your healer. did, Did you hear that? In this case, there is no judgment for grumbling. Even though it has the same character as the grumbling in numbers that we've just been considering, God overlooks it. And he says, listen, listen, you must trust me. From here on out, you must trust me. For no matter what it looks like to your eyes, I have nothing but good to do to you. And then to further prove it, If you keep reading, the next verse, it says, 
The next place that God led them was a place with seven springs of water, and that's where they camped, an oasis. The Lord has given them grace. He has been patient with their rebellion. He has proven that he intends to do them good by leading them into a place where the water is abundant. But by the time we reach numbers, they are fed up with God's supposed goodness. If this, if this is goodness, they seem to be saying, then it will be better for us to die under judgment than to live under his favor in this cursed wilderness. So I hope you can see like how serious this rebellion is. The people truly believe in their hearts that God means to do them harm. And they no longer want anything to do with God. Now, I've already mentioned that the judgments that came upon them for that particular commitment were severe. Now the question is, is there any hope for these people and for people like us who share that same commitment? Is there any hope? The answer is yes. There is hope. In each of these three rebellions, just as judgment came down upon the people, Moses intercedes for the people. He asks for the removal of the judgment. And, and, you know, we got three chapters here. We could look at all the different ways that Moses interceded, but I, I, want, I just want to look at one of them for the sake of clarity. And I'm leaving, I'm leaving such tasty stuff on the table, but I, I don't have an infinite amount of time. So let's just look at one, okay? Let's look at the one with the fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21. Let's look at what happens. This is 21, verse 4 through 9. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. Note that. What are they asking for? Take the serpents away. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if, anyone, and if, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, hmm, let's draw out the important points here. God's people have grown sick of God and his ways. He has fed them every day, and they've grown to loathe that worthless food. He's delivered them from slavery in the house of Egypt, and they've grown to despise God's salvation because it bears so little resemblance to the good life that they would choose for themselves. And God judges them for their sin by sending fiery serpents among them. Now, we're not exactly told what a fiery serpent is. It's scary. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I do know a couple of things. Number one, it's a snake. Number two, the bite is deadly. Number three, they are aggressive. They're not just docile. Like, you know, people say, well, snakes aren't that dangerous as long as you don't. No, these are dangerous. They will chase the people and they will bite them. They're intent on striking the feet of the Israelites. And as a result of this judgment, many people died. When the people feel the terrible weight 
of that judgment for their grumbling, for their rebellion, for their rejection, they cry out to Moses for help. Please tell the Lord to take these serpents away. Moses cries to the Lord for help, and the Lord is merciful on his people, but his mercy is not what you would expect. Watch this. We would expect God in his mercy to hear the cries of the people and to do what they're asking. Take the snakes away. Remove the judgment. Or strike them dead or something. But that's not what he does. Rather... The Lord instructs Moses to make a statue out of bronze. And what does the statue look like? A bronze serpent. Listen, the statue is in the image of their judgment. You see that? The statue is the image of their judgment. And the solution is this. If anyone is bitten... They must look at the bronze serpent and they will not die, but they will live. And don't miss that. At the point that Moses lifts up the bronze serpent, the snakes are still there. They're still biting people. The judgment is still active. Now now put yourself in that situation for just a second. Like aggressive, deadly, fiery serpents are biting you slithering on the ground with great determination and speed. And Moses says to them, if you want to save yourselves, look up. Look at the serpent. Look at the bronze. Don't look down here at the, ser- at the fiery serpents. Don't look at your jo- Look up. And what's the last thing you're likely to do? Look up. Like Moses is saying, look up and you will live. Look at the bronze serpent and your judgment will be ended. And I, would, I just have to imagine that if I'm in that situation, the last thing I would ever do. It, it makes no sense to take my attention away from this deadly judgment. And yet that was the way God's salvation worked. So yes, there was hope for these people who were under God's judgment. They were to look at the image of their judgment and live. But now let me show you something astonishing. Many centuries later, Jesus Christ is having a conversation with a teacher of Israel named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says, this is a very famous chapter, you probably heard this before. Jesus says something that puzzles Nicodemus profoundly. He says, if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus, I mean, he's a smart man. Jesus identifies him as the teacher of Israel, and he can't figure this one out. What do you mean born again? How does a grown man re-enter his mother's womb and get born? How do you do what? He can't figure it out. And listen to Jesus' response in chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, 
end. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, he says it again, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus draws this comparison between himself and the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And Jesus says, in the same manner, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him, whoever looks upon him, may live. Or in Jesus' words, have everlasting life. So in drawing this comparison, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and by extension, people like us who find the spirit of grumbling within ourselves, here's what he's saying, four things. Number one, we must believe that we are sinful beyond measure. If we are going to escape the deadly judgment, We must, number one, this is what Jesus is saying, we must believe that we are sinful beyond measure. The grumbling is in all of us. The grumbling, the rebellion, the rejection of God, the the accusations of his, the impugning of his good character, that is within all of us. And if you feel that right now, like you feel the weight of that, then I have some good news for you. So first, we must believe we are sinful beyond measure. Number two, we must cry out for help. You will never be delivered from your sin. I will never be delivered from my sin. None of us will be delivered of our own volition and effort. The snakes are simply too determined. We cannot do anything about them by ourselves. And so, number three, we must cease our atoning work. The the more you try to stomp on the stakes and run, like, away from them, the, the more you try to escape that judgment, the more determined they become. You can't escape the judgment by trying to eradicate it on your own. That's what the people wanted. Get the snakes away. But that's not what God did. The people of Israel learned that lesson the hard way. They they learned the lesson of trying to eradicate their own judgment the hard way. We didn't read this part, but let me just summarize it for you. In the first judgment, when God, when they were um, invited to go into the land, but they were too afraid, and so they said, no, let's go back to Egypt. The first judgment was that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. And at that, their heart was broken. They actually received it. They received that judgment and their heart was broken. And so they did what probably many of us would do. They plucked up their courage. They say, we're going to fix this. Never mind. We are going to go in and fight the Canaanites. Like, but God was not with them in that way. And so they were slaughtered. Why? Because the Canaanites actually were as fearful and as dreadful 
as they thought. The decisive factor is whether or not God himself would fight for them, not whether they would fight for themselves, but whether God would fight for them. Our works, Jesus is telling us by drawing this comparison between himself and the bronze serpent, our works cannot eradicate the judgment which God has pronounced upon us. And so that brings us to number four. We must believe in Christ's atoning provision for our sin. Don't look at the... Don't look at the fiery serpents, the judgments any longer. You can't escape them. You can't subdue them. Instead, look to the Son of Man crucified in your stead, the very image of your judgment. And if you do that, you shall live, Jesus says. You shall enter eternal life. Like, do you see Jesus crushed under the weight of your iniquity and mine? Do you see the blood of the only Son of God pouring out from his body and from his wounds? Do you hear his chilling cry of dereliction as the Father abandoned him on the cross? If you can see those things, then you can see yourself. That was our judgment. That was the image of our judgment. I deserved to die a death like that, not him. But the good news is that he did not require that from you. God judged his son instead of you. And now he invites you to look. That's it. Look and live. Believe that his atoning work is enough to rescue you. So, brothers and sisters, no matter what it looks like from our limited perspective, God has never ceased to do us good. He has promised that he intends to prosper us and not to harm us. And though everything within us wants to grumble at his providences, we must believe that he is working good in our lives up to this moment. And the only way we can possibly believe that is because of what occurred outside the walls of Jerusalem on the day of Christ's crucifixion. Like... You know the rebel in your heart. I, I know it too, I, and I know the objection to that. The objection is that, huh, that God, it's, it's very easy for him to say that. As he sits in glory on his throne, it's very easy for God to say, trust me in all your afflictions, in all of your sorrows. Cast your cares upon me. Take up my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light. Easy for him to say while he is on a throne in glory being ceaselessly worshipped day and night. But when we see Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, what we see is that God did not remain 
aloof from our condition. Instead, he entered it. And in doing so, he bore all manner of afflictions and sorrows and anxieties. He experienced the agony of the human condition. And bringing all that to mind is the only way I know to silence that grumbling rebellion in our hearts. Because when we see Jesus Christ incarnated, crucified, and resurrected, it is beautiful in our sight. Now, as we come to this table, it's also beautiful in our sight. Here we see the bread and the cup, which are also symbols of both our judgment and our deliverance. The bread speaks to us of the broken body of Jesus Christ, and the atoning blood isn't the cup speaks to us of the atoning blood spilled for our salvation. All the judgment that should have come upon us has fallen upon him. If you find yourself today in circumstances that have caused the grumbling to well up within you, then eat this bread and drink this cup and taste and see that the Lord is good. And he will never cease in his kindnesses to you. So... Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.